Welcome to episode 121 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. For you, there's nothing in this world I wouldn't do. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. How are you? I am great. How are you? I'm excited because every time I get to talk to you and we get to drop a cast, I always kind of feel a little pumped up. Yeah, it's a good time. I'm pretty stoked. I'm not going to lie. I can see, I can hear the excitement in your voice. It's palpable. It is palpable. <laughs> I don't know what that means. You're, in terms you're just of... always so, you're always so like even keel and chill. <laughs> I save all of my, um, my energy for when we start to talk about stuff that I need to get exercised about. Oh, fair enough. And speaking of that, this is another question cast episode. Actually, I was looking back through our little catalog. Believe it or not, this is the one year anniversary of question cast. Is it? Excellent. It is. Yeah. We've been doing this for one year. And to that end, of course, we always love to have people participate in the conversations with us. And we're fresh out of voicemails after this particular episode. That's crazy. It's crazy. It's like it's like the the podcasting world said, "Happy birthday, Question Cast." No more Question Cast. True. Yeah, we got a bunch of excellent questions which we're going to jump into. But in the meantime, if you have a question or just want to leave us a voicemail with a little bit of love or some complaining, you can do either of those things by calling 607-444-2767. Bros. Well said. So shall we jump into it? Let's do it. Let's do it. Here we go. Question cast. Hey, guys. This is Wilson in South Texas. Uh, I want to thank you all for your podcast. It's been great. Uh, my question is, uh, we've seen in the past 15 years, 18 years, what have you, the rise of uh, Reformed theology once again and, and the Young Restless Reforms movement. I'm assuming very little if anyone thought this was coming. Um, well, what would you think? It's coming across the horizon for us. Let's look at the next 10, 15, 20 years. And uh, what, what do you think will be the next movement? Will the reforms movement continue um, in, in Brighton? Will something take its place? Will Arminian theology um, become more popular? And instead of beards, it's anti-beard, beards, um, and anti-coffee, anti alcohol or what have you um what do you think come in in the horizon love to get your thoughts thanks i like the, this question from wilson because it's forward looking and it's also getting kind of coming from this sense that reformed theology has really been on the rise for the last decade so yeah in your mind because i think you have your finger on the pulse of a lot of what's happening in theology writ large what do you think is the next big movement well, unfortunately, I think um, the next sort of resurgence that we're seeing, it's not even what we're going to see, it's what we're currently seeing, is sort of this Socinian-Pelagian theology that we're seeing that's kind of ascendant in uh, Southern Baptist circles, in the Southern Baptist Confession uh, Convention. So you have people like Leighton Flowers who call themselves traditionalists, despite the fact that their theology is novel in reference to the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, and then you have people like William Lane Craig, who aren't necessarily part of the SPC, but um, his Molinism is finding a lot of grounds in um, sort of that Armenian 
anti-Calvinist stream of thinking. Um, so I, I think we're going to see that increase and continue to increase. Um, you know, not not that Pelagianism or semi-Pelagianism or this sort of Pelagianizing tendency that we're seeing is new by any stretch of the imagination, um, but it does seem to be kind of the next thing that's coming down the pike here. I think that's a fair observation. One of the things that's, I think, true of so many trends, whenever something becomes novel, we kind of see these cycles like around some kind of mean or average value. And so it's always moving kind of up or down in kind of this wavelength movement. And while it's always approaching the average, it usually has so much momentum that it goes far beyond it and then it has to come either back down or back up. Right. And so I agree with what you're saying because I think in kind of the modern context of at least like the United States, the highest moral and civic virtue right now is tolerance. And so yeah. I think in a general sense, without being like too pejorative, the Ar- Arminian mindset, the synergistic mindset is a little bit more tolerant because it's placing everyone on an equal basis in terms of being able to receive the gospel. And so that I think that plays a little bit better. It's a little bit easier yeah. to metabolize. And so I think that just like we have a pendulum swinging toward the kind of Calvinistic movement or the reformed, restless, the young, all that stuff, or whatever order you want to put those three things in. <laughs> I mean, obviously when something like that happens, there's there's kind of like an equal but opposite pushback at some point. So I think we will see this movement back towards the fact that, well, Calvinism is too restrictive and it, it, you know it's focusing on double predestination. And what we need is something that's a little bit more tolerant that emphasizes kind of this quote unquote missional aspect of everyone being ripe and available and having this opportunistic approach to receive the gospel. Yeah. So I do think that's that's coming back. The second thing I would say that I think, and this is just like me going out on a limb a little bit, but what I'd be curious to hear your opinion on this. One of the things I think that is going to come back kind of, and this is almost against what we just said is I think we're going to see somewhat of a resurgence in kind of, I would say stripped down, maybe more reformed worship. And the reason I say that is because I think there's so many churches now that are making such a big deal of worship on the Lord's Day, particularly in the expression of music or through music, as kind of this like concert experience. And it's gotten to the point, I know it's big enough when like the Wall Street Journal reported on Friday with this little article that is t- entitled, Why Are People Wearing Earplugs in Church? Hint, it's not the sermon. And it's a yeah. whole article in the journal on the front page about the decibel levels and like kind of the concert going atmosphere of not just mega churches, but kind of churches all across the United States and kind of like general evangelicalism. And I think that kind of movement is going to get some pushback where people kind of go back into kind of a more reformed understanding of worship, something that's a little bit more focused on God and less focused on appealing to the masses. What do you think yeah. of that? Yeah, I think that that's probably sort of the next logical phase of the reform resurgence that we've been seeing over the last decade. So I actually, we haven't really plugged this movie all that much, but um, you really, our listeners really, if you haven't, should go and uh, check out Les Lanfear's movie Calvinist, which kind of talks about the beginnings of the reformed, kind of the reformed resurgence. Uh, And he sort of calls for the next phase of this resurgence to be a move towards confessionalism, which anyone who knows less or has listened to the podcast would not be surprised by that. But he's making this new movie that's called Spirit and Truth. And it's not it's not about the regulative principle. It's not about um, worship music. Those are kind of the misnomers that people thought it was about. But it is sort of about the theology of worship. And what I think we're finding is sort of 
If you look at sort of the progression that an average um, sort of evangelical takes when they go from being evangelical or, you know, sort of evangelutheran uh, to being uh, reformed, sort of lowercase r, Calvinistic, um, Acts 29 reformed, into a more fully orbed confessionalism, kind of one of the last things that falls into place for most people is this reform perspective on worship, that the, right. the worship of the Lord is regulated by the scriptures, that we're not free to go outside of the commands that he's given us. So I think this movement that you're seeing and that you're understanding towards this um, more reformed, regulated worship um, is probably just the tail end of this resurgence that we're seeing. Kind of all the people who, you know, 10 years ago were in their mid-20s and were just discovering Tulip and listening to Mark, uh, Mark Driscoll. They're kind of progressing and maturing. And I put myself in this category, progressing and maturing into a more uh, robust understanding of what it means to be reformed. So I think you're probably right that that's kind of the next thing in the reformed world. But one of the things I wanted to also just bring up on the Arminian side of things, this doesn't apply to all Arminians, but um, the traditions that are not confessional traditions. So there are very few Arminians that are actually confessional Arminians who would um, like hold to like the the Methodist confessions or something like that. Um, A non-confessional tradition is much more able to acclimate itself and accommodate itself to whatever's going on in the culture. So when you think about um, which traditions tend to go first in in terms of kind of capitulating to the cultural pressures of abortion or sort of more liberal social issues, it tends to be the the non-confessional traditions, which for the most part are mainstream Lutheran uh, traditions, ELCA, those kinds of groups, and sort of the Arminian tradition as a whole. So you have all these evangelicals that weren't tethered to any sort of confession, and all of a sudden someone like a Peter Enns comes along and wants to redefine what the scripture means, and they're just enamored with it. Exactly. John Walton or somebody like that who wants to say, well, no, Genesis 1 isn't about creation ex nihilo. It's about God shaping the existing creation and making it functional. Well, if you don't have a confessional tradition that says, no, that's not the correct interpretation of the Bible, all of a sudden it sounds very compelling. So I think we're going to see more and more... um, confessional or unconfessional, non-confessional Arminianism kind of rise to the surface because the pressures of this world tend to push the confessional traditions down a little bit when we're in sort of these eras where it's hard to be a conservative. Um, This isn't the first time in history where it's hard to be a traditional conservative anything. Um, So the people who can step outside of that conservatism a little bit, um, they're going to have an easier time getting by than some of the more confessional traditions, I think. I completely agree with that because it's, I think it is important to note that it's not as if the environment that we're in now is the worst it's ever been in all of history, so to speak. And in some ways, right. I think that old Margaret's quote is true. I, I think he said it where there's no new news, just old news happening to new people. And so we have these cycles where we're going through these phases in which if something becomes in vogue and then there's a push against that and that thing becomes in vogue. And then of course, there's an equal and opposite push. And so I agree with you because I think, the, again, like the Armenian perspective is a little bit more palatable, so to speak. And yeah. to your point, this is why I think not it's important to have a confessional understanding of things, or I think at least to be rooted in a confession because it is this wonderful synopsis and of, of all these kind of systematic ideas that are expressed in the scripture. But more than that, going back to something we said many, many times, and that is just being rooted in the scriptures yourself, having like a daily and regular pattern of reading through the entirety of God's counsel 
will give us a better understanding so that when we are pushed upon or we receive ideas from our culture, we're, we can more quickly say or discern whether they or not they are biblical. And so yeah. I think based on our, that maybe this is a trend in itself, like the, the fact that biblical literacy is declining substantially, I would say overall on average, that that yeah. is now, of course, opening up or be, we're becoming more susceptible in terms of kind of being influenced by these outside ideas or trying to acquiesce to them at least, because there's no doubt that some people will speak of acquiescing to certain kinds of, you know, things in our culture with, I would say like some sense of force, but also some sense of a convincing argumentation. And so we need to be able to be prepared to push against that or at least to defend against that. And so I I think you're absolutely right on both accounts. Can I just go on a little digression for just a second? I would love it if you did a digression right now. So, you know, I've, I've, we've spoken at length over the past really like a year, year and a half on how important like daily Bible reading is. And I've been trying to not only make sure I spend time in the word every day, but I'm trying to ramp up the amount of scripture that I'm reading every day. So this year I'm on, I think, pretty aggressive, um, sort of an ambitious Bible reading plan. So I'm planning on making it through the scriptures three times in its entirety this year. So basically it's, it's once through the scripture every four months. And I'll just say that reading large chunks of scripture like that, and then, I mean, it's not huge amounts, it ends up being like 15 to 20 chapters a day, really like changes your perspective and you see things in the scriptures you didn't before. So like, here's a really kind of trivial, and maybe it's not trivial, I need to dig into it a little bit more, but sort of a trivial example is I never put together that the first judge of Israel was also... Caleb, the Israel, one of the spies who didn't, you know, didn't come back and whine about the promised land. Right. It was Caleb's son-in-law who was the first judge of Israel. So like there's this overlap in the text where almost the same, um, almost the same wording for like maybe six or seven verses about Caleb and these springs that he gave to his daughters and her husband, Othniel, like they overlap and like you just see these things and now all of a sudden um, the timing of judges locks in right with the timing of um, of Joshua. And for me, that really like answered one of those hard apologetic questions is you read about how the book of Joshua seems to present this picture as though the conquest was complete. And then you get to the book of Judges and it's not. So what do you do with that? Well, the right. fact is, is that there's this intratextual overlap that shows that at least the end of Joshua and the beginning of Judges take place at the same time. So like it answers that question that you wouldn't have otherwise seen if you weren't reading the large chunks. And it just happened to be that my reading plan took me where I was reading that last part of Joshua and the first part of Judges at the same time. So I would really encourage people because that's the thing is reading large chunks of scripture. Um, you know, I'm taking this um, this program, this MDiv through the North American Reform Seminary. And one of the things, it was a total tangent, but um, Doug Kelly in his Systematic One lectures talks about how expository preaching is important because it gives uh, the preacher and it gives the congregation sort of a divine logic. And so you end up, you end up having to understand things the way God does because the text unfolds the way that God wants it to. And it's been the same thing for me is all of a sudden I'm seeing these connections between texts that I normally wouldn't read Joshua 
and then read Judges all in one sitting. But in, in this case, I read like 10 chapters of Joshua and 10 cha- chapters of Judges. And all of a sudden, there's this divine logic between the books that really opened it up for me. So I'd really just encourage people to spend more time. And the way that that ties into this question, I think, is that um, there are traditions that are more heavily invested in spending large amounts of time in Scripture. And this may be a total stereotype, but my experience with um, the kind of the average Armenian is that that's not them. It's usually like, I'm going to read this Bible plan where I read like, you know, part of a chapter of this and part of a chapter of that, and then like a devotional thought. And that's not the way that the scriptures were intended to be read. So just sit down, read large portions of chapter, uh, portions of scripture, and it will protect you from a lot of different errors and mistakes that you probably wouldn't have made otherwise. Right. And we, we're all susceptible to fall into that kind of problem where right. we just kind of view the scriptures because of our reading plan, which is trying to move us through the entirety, but we get compartmentalized. So, right. I mean, who who has not done one where it's like, well, well a genre-based plan where it's a different genre every day or the McShay plan, which, you know, again, splits up the scriptures. And those are helpful because it does help you get on a schedule and move through. But I think, as you're saying, their great downside is is you can become disjointed with kind of the full arc. And I'm yeah. with you on that because incidentally, I was reading a large chunk of scripture recently and was really moved by how it was all coming together. And in fact, I was just really trying purposely to ignore the headings and the verse numbers to just kind of move through a text and get a better yeah. sense of what's happening here. And this is going to sound, this is way more mundane than what you just said. This is going to sound super mundane, but one of the things I don't know why I was absolutely floored by is I was coming through Genesis 19 and the account of Lot and then mm-hmm. his daughters and that craziness. And for whatever reason, I, I mean, after 38 years and only now did I just realize that through looking at this text, which is like just right in front of me, that the children that came out of that that incestuous relationship are the Moabites and the Ammonites. Yeah. I, for whatever reason, like I, I never put that together or never just paid enough attention, yeah. but reading it through, getting like the whole genealogy, the whole arc of the story, those, those details jumped out and it yeah. made things all consistent and congruent. Yeah. Yeah. Read lots of scripture, lots and lots of scripture in one sitting in like in yeah, the order that it was written. Exactly. There's nothing wrong with that. Like I almost feel like that's a fun challenge to just like, take an hour and just see how much scripture you can read through. Start start yeah. in a place and just keep reading or like read through the whole book of Romans, for instance, all at once. And I yeah. remember doing that and just getting this wonderful sense. It was almost like it wasn't like it was a different sense of writing, but in other ways it was because I was seeing mm-hmm. the entire letter as it was unfolding. And there was a different sense of beauty, almost being up on top of the mountain and being able to see all the contours of the land below, as opposed yeah. to just like hiking up and taking snapshots at one point in time. Yeah. And we're going to see, um, we're going to see in actually in this next question and then in the question after it, how important it is for you to read like entire chapters or entire sections and not break them up into these discrete parts because we end up making a lot of theological mistakes if we only read part of a chapter or part of a section um, that is really like – it's funny because well, every once in a while I get these people that will come to me online with like they've got this really hard theological question and they're like, what do I do with this verse? I don't know what to do with this verse. And I just have them read the whole chapter and it's like all of a sudden they're like, oh, yeah, it's not that big of a deal because just right. the logic is there. It's not like the scriptures are unclear. We just have to read them how they were written and intended to be read. Man, brother, I think as the kids say, that was a dope segue. So let's get to the <laughs> next question. Do the kids say that? I don't know, but I'm saying that they do. They're going to now. (laughs) Here's the next voicemail. 
Good afternoon, guys. I want to thank you in advance for this call opportunity. Um, I have a new question for you, um, and it's based on some reading from the Biblical Theology Study Bible that I decided to get after listening to you all advertise it. Um, it's about the Abrahamic Covenant. I was I usually read the Reformation Study Bible, so that's kind of where I'm used to. And as I was reading the Biblical Theology one, when it came to the Abrahamic Covenant, the study notes talked about how it was one covenant in Genesis 15 and a separate covenant in Genesis 17. And that was new for me. I hadn't really thought of it that way before. Um, it's different than how when I read guys like Paula Robertson and um, folks like that. So I thought I'd ask you, how do you see the Abrahamic Covenant? Do you see it as two separate covenantal transactions in 15 and 17 or something more like what I read in my Reformation Study Bible of 15 is the self-maledictory oath, and 17 talks about the obligation you have because now you belong to God. So in any case, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I know you're probably different because you're not the same confession. You don't affirm the same confession, but I'd love to hear from both of you how you understand those key uh, chapters in Genesis. Thank you so much. So there's all kinds of great stuff in this voicemail. So let's kind of distill it down a bit. So I think the first fundamental question is, in our opinion, do we see the Abrahamic covenant as two separate transactions, or do we understand chapter 15 as what's traditionally called the self-maledictory oath in chapter 17 as establishing the sign of the covenant? And by way of providing some context, the, the aforementioned NIV Biblical Study Bible does have this wonderful little matrix and it basically labels the Abrahamic covenant for resource in two ways, Abrahamic A and Abrahamic B. So Abrahamic A is referencing that it's found in Genesis 15, 6 through 21, and it's made with righteous Abraham, you know, his faith was credited to him as righteousness, and to his descendants. It's an unconditional divine promise to fulfill the grant of land, self-maledictory, oh, symbolically enacted, basically. And that's compared against what they're noting as Abrahamic B, which is found in Genesis 17. And that's made with Abraham as the patriarchal head of his household in this suzerain vassal style. So in that, they're saying it's kind of a conditional divine pledge to be Abraham's God and the God of his descendants on the condition basically that he has total consecration to the Lord as symbolized by circumcision. So I think this is a decent question. And I think that probably my my initial reaction from just looking at how this particular translation of the Bible in this rubric lays it out. I wouldn't say that they're trying to emphasize that it's two separate covenants, but I think they're merely trying to delineate the important pieces that are combined in one, but are differentiated and important to separate out. Yeah. Yeah. So there are definitely some people who would say that this is two distinct covenants, um, particularly um, 1689 Federalists tend to see this as distinct covenants. Right. One of them is kind of a, the, the promise of, um, the promise of the covenant of grace. Uh, and then one of them is sort of seen as like the temporal land promise. Um, so I, I don't take that view as, as you would probably surmise from the fact that I'm a, a Westminster covenant guy. Um, and I would instead sort of see this as a covenant that has sort of two installments or two covenant signs, 
two sort of initiations, um, one of them emphasizing God's unilateral act in, in creating and establishing this covenant, and then one of them emphasizing um, sort of the, the requirements or the stipulations of the covenant um, and the sanctions. So the, the first one is God takes, you know, God takes the covenant upon himself and he assumes all of the sanctions of the covenant. Um, Abraham is entirely passive in the covenant. But then we get to Genesis 17, and now all of a sudden there is this um, this concept that if Abraham is not obedient to the terms of the covenant, that Abraham will be cut off from the covenant. So if, if Abraham or anyone in his covenant headship um, fails to circumcise their child, then that person and their children, which is kind of one of the reasons that... Um, that Presbyterians read it this way, that person and their children will be cut off from uh, the covenant people. So I wouldn't right. see this as two distinct covenants. Um, I also kind of look at it, you know, when we talk about the covenant of grace, we talk about a plurality of administrations, but a singularity of covenant. So the Abrahamic, the Davidic, the Mosaic, all the different covenants that we see are sort of these subservient covenants that um, are components of this broader covenant arc of the covenant of grace. So we have that established in the theology that a covenant can sort of have these sub-administrations. So it wouldn't even be so far as to say that Abraham's covenant could also have sub-administrations. And we have different these two different sort of initiatory or um, establishing covenant ceremonies that establish potentially different administrations of the Abrahamic covenant. Right. I, I agree with that. I think that this might put me in kind of a, a weird middle ground in the sense that my conviction would be as well that they are a unified covenant with two distinct parts. And, you know, this is obviously referencing back to Genesis 12, I think one through three, where the, the original promises are given to Abraham. And if you look at those verses, they're basically bifurcated in the sense that like the first set of promises involves a blessing to Abraham. And the second set of promises involves a blessing through Abraham to the right. world. And so Genesis 15 and 17 are describing, I would say, like two distinct but related covenants. So maybe I'm kind of splitting the difference here, but they're based on two different sets of promises that are in the original promise God gives in Genesis 12, 1 right. through 3. So the first covenant, Genesis 15, is really related, in my opinion, to like the nationhood. We're talking about heirs and inheritance without any explicit mention of the international blessing. But the second in Genesis 17, which is actually dependent upon the fulfillment of the first is related to this international significance of Abraham and his seed. So there yeah. is, I, I totally understand what kind of the the listener is kind of coming at here. There is this distinction. I think there's an appropriate delineation here, which is why I think the NIV study Bible is separating them out. So we don't just conflate them into, well, this is God just repeating what he did before, what he said before. So, you know, the chapters, they have different structures and they describe different rituals representing the different covenantal oaths. Genesis 15, like you said, is unilateral covenant, while Genesis 17 describes bilateral commitments. There is that promise of only it, your people will remain in the community of God if you continue to, to uh, have them circumcised. Genesis 15 describes kind of a temporal covenant, in my opinion, and it's fulfilled basically once the nation of Israel has taken possession of the land. And Genesis 17 describes something that's a little bit more enduring. And so, there's like a shift in focus from a single nation, Genesis 15, to a multitude of nations, Genesis 17. And the nation, you know, that is Abraham and his seed, is the result of the Genesis 15 covenant, but it's the partner in the Genesis 17 covenant. So, and that's paralleled by the name change that happens in that in Genesis 17 from Abram 
to Abraham. So it, right. I actually see like this wonderful confluence. It's like a contrariety where it seems like they are actually separated, but they have like a, a wonderful consummate harmony. But yeah. I, I like that, that at least the study Bible is trying to get us to think about the difference that's between the two in terms of what God is doing, the role that he is taking, the, the I would say like the covenant itself, because I think what you said, people often don't realize, at least I didn't for some time in terms of like, who is taking roles and responsibilities in each of these? It's, it's actually totally different. Yeah. And one of the things that I want to just throw out there to continue our, pl- our seemingly episode long plug of reading large portions of scripture is I want to read this here because one of the things that people do when they read this, and I'm not 100% sure what to make of this yet, but they look at the fact that only the Lord or this theophany of the Lord passed between the severed pieces in Genesis 15 right. to mean that the covenant curses do not fall, do not potentially fall on Abraham if he doesn't obey. And that that presupposition is what's used to say that these are different covenants because in 15 there's no sanctions for Abraham and in 17 there are. So I want to read um, starting in verse 10. It says, and he brought all of these, the different kinds of animals, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses and Abram drove them away. And then it goes on to describe um, what what the covenant ceremony is. And then it closes off the, um, the chapter here in verse 18. One on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, to the U- river Euphrates, to the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cabanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites and the Jebusites. So I was reading this and one of the, so reading through this, I come upon Deuteronomy 28, uh, I think 27, 26. Yep, 26. And had I not only read Genesis, maybe like, I don't know, three or four days before, I wouldn't have seen this connection. So Genesis, uh, Deuteronomy 28, uh, 25. This is um, basically Moses is telling the Israelites what will happen to them when they break the covenant that God has made with them. It says, The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. You shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Verse 26, and your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth, and there shall be no one to frighten them away. So, so drawing this connection, the Abraham scaring the birds away is actually part of the covenant ceremony. So we tend to think that when Abraham goes to sleep, that's when the covenant ceremony starts. But Abraham's cutting up the pieces of the animals and scaring away the birds of the prey. All of this is sort of an enacted parable, which is what these covenant ceremonies were. Is that if if you're faithful, this is what will happen to you. If you're not faithful, this is what will happen to you. And so in, in a certain sense... Abraham scaring the birds away. Abraham is sort of playing the role of God there. And the pieces are Israel. It's prefiguring what will happen to them. And Moses picks up on that imagery here. And it's obviously inspired. And the birds of the air will not be frightened away. And then later in Jeremiah, that same thing is repeated when Jeremiah is telling them about the curses that are coming. He says the birds, the the vultures, the the birds of prey will not be scared away. So I think we just have to be really careful um, when we're, we're divvying up these things to look at it and say, okay, uh, verse 15 or chapter 15 is one thing. Chapter 17 is another. But in fact, if you're reading the scriptures as it was intended to be read, 
verse 15 and 17 are remarkably close to each other. So to see that as right. part of all one narrative um, narrative section is not that far of a stretch. And we should probably say that I think that the self-maledictory term is kind of like a misnomer because it's been placed there. And that, of course, right. literally means to speak evil of oneself. So in Hebrews, of course, this is referenced back in terms of kind of affirming that the one taking the oath here who would be God would call down evil on himself if he failed to keep the terms of the covenant. Or in essence, he would acknowledge that the penalties ascribed to his failure to live under the ethics outlined by the sovereign within that particular covenant. So I think there's like a happy tension here. Abraham, like you said, I like what you brought up, is participating in this ritual. At the same time, God puts him to sleep, like just knocks him out basically, so that he is the one that walks between the pieces. But I, I think that doesn't mean that he's uninvolved. And so right. I think that's where this the, this beautiful and actually happy tension occurs, where there is consummate harmony, and these are more united than they are separate, if that makes sense. I don't yeah. know if that makes me like a bad Baptist, but it's <laughs> I, I find like in like a thorough, like you said, kind of like a in a more broad reading of scripture, I know that these these probably two events are could be separated by as many as like 13 years, I think, if you look at the scripture. It, yeah. it doesn't mean, though, I think that God is establishing something separate. And I think that also, like in most of our Bibles, the headings do us a disservice here because I looked through just real quick while we were talking, and almost every translation is going to title these as like, you know, the covenant with Abraham and then the covenant of circumcision, right. which kind of leads you to want to, like, it, it kind of pushes you in this direction with a bias that these are two separate things rather than things that are united but have some distinction between them. Yeah, and just to sort of flip this around too, to sort of maybe bring this question to a little bit of a close, is we would not, Baptists and Presbyterians would both agree, we wouldn't see this idea of different um, different symbols um, being initiated at different times necessarily constituting different covenants, right? Exactly. So for Presbyterians, most Presbyterians are baptized when they're babies. They don't take communion until later in their life, probably around the age of 10, maybe 11 or 12, depending on the kid um, and the church and all these different things. Even Baptists, a lot of times, will there'll be a, um, a separation in time between when a person is baptized and when they take communion for the first time. And Absolutely. Christ instituted baptism in his baptism, right? And then three years later, he instituted the Lord's Supper in the Lord's Supper. So it's not as though these these separate covenants even, or these separate covenant signs, even when they're separated by lots of time, um, it's not as though they are separate covenants. And what I think is really important to remember with Abraham here is that God is, um, God is confirming his covenant, which he made. So God made a promise in Genesis 15, and then he confirms this covenant. And this is a, this is a covenant circum, um, circumcision is a covenant sign that will be repeated multiple times throughout the, uh, life of a family. Right, so there's there's the circumcision, and every time a male is born, this covenant sign is re- repeated. That is not the same as the initial covenant sign that was given, which is not repeated. So it's not as though this corresponds directly to baptism and the Lord's Supper, although it kind of does, because you have sort of this judgment sign in the uh, the splitting of the animals and walking between it, and that's done once. And then you have this repeated sign that's done throughout the generations of Israel that sort of reaffirms and reasserts the covenant. 
Yeah, I like that because I think the, these covenants do not stand alone. They're really integrated into a story that focuses on Abraham's faith and loyalty. And there's a causal relationship. It's sometimes explicit, but oftentimes it's implicit between Abraham's faith and loyalty and the making of the covenants. So I, I think that it is important for us to understand that they are different, but part of like a unified whole. And I think that I would agree with you, like that Baptists and Presbyterians would agree on a lot of that sense of like that this is God reaffirming his promises and creating kind of a, a holistic or fully orbed understanding of what he is giving to Abraham. And it's just manifested in 15 and it's manifested in chapter 17. Yep, absolutely. Beautiful. All right, let's do another question. Let's do it. Hey guys, this is Colin Damsko from Tyler, Texas. I have a question about perseverance of the saints, which is an issue that has troubled me recently since I'm studying the Lutheran views on certain issues, especially where they differ from the Reformed. I realized that 1 John 2 would have us believe that those that finally apostatized were never truly of us, but if that's the case, then what does it mean for someone to be severed from Christ, as it says in Galatians 5, or for there no longer to be a sacrifice for sins for the apostate, Hebrews 10, or for the apostate to have once been enlightened and to have had repentance that they could not be restored to, as in Hebrews 6. I get the Presbyterian covenantal responses out there saying these things are covenantal in nature, but I don't understand how the people solely in the administration of the covenant were actually truly attached to Christ as to be severed or had a true sacrifice for sins in Christ or was enlightened um, or had true repent had true repentance that they could be restored to. It makes sense to me that the substance of the covenant would have these things, but they don't finally fall away. It doesn't make sense to me that those that do fall away ever had these things to begin with because they are so closely tied to having a saving faith and being among the elect. Maybe I'm missing something or maybe you can shed some light on this. Thanks. So our brother uh, Colin, I want to say Calvin for some reason, <laughs> Colin uh, is coming at, coming right out of the gate here with a really excellent and I think a very deep and nuanced question. And I think what he's basically driving at is if those that finally apostatized were never truly in Christ, then what does it mean for someone to be severed from Christ, as Paul writes in Galatians 5.4? So if this is a matter of covenantal administration, then how are those who were solely in the administration of the covenant truly attached to Christ that they could be severed or had a true sacrifice for sins in Christ? I mean, this is a heavy question, but... I think he's, he's on the right path because he's trying to compare the different points of scripture here about what it says about apostasy. So yeah. I'll let you start us off on this. So this is one of those um, questions that this is not to sound snarky and, and maybe it sounds that way, but it's not intended to be. This is one of those questions that doesn't come up if you read Greek because the word in Greek is much clearer as far as what Paul is trying to say than, than the English translations that... Um, supply. So in Galatians 5, 4, um, in the ESV, it uses the word severed, which implies that there was some sort of vital union prior to that, um, which would, would beg the question or would, would, uh, yield the question, how could we say that there's a vital union, which is then separated if we also affirm that there was never a vital union to start with, Exactly, Um, which is kind of where like the, the federal vision goes. They want to say there was an actual vital union with Christ that is then fallen away. And and they say, this is a true fall away from grace. So they're citing this verse, but the word in Greek is kat argeo, 
which um, if you look it up in like Strong's Concordance, you're going to see um, all sorts of different uses. But the basic um, the basic meaning is to render idle, unemployed, inactive or inoperative or to cause to cease or put an end to. So right to on. annul or to abolish. Um, and the word is really emphasizing the um, sort of the lack of effectiveness or the lack of um, of causation. So we look, um, just if you look through, uh, Strong's, you find Romans three thirty one. do we overthrow the law by this faith? By no means on the contrary, we uphold this law, the word overthrow, do we render the law void? Do we render the law null? Um, Romans four fourteen. for if it is the adherence of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. The void is this word katargao. So it's talking about, um, Whatever it is that's katargeod is basically made null. It has no benefit. And like I said, this is one of those ones where if you just read the whole chapter, it becomes really clear. So starting at verse one, for freedom, Christ has set you free. Stand firm. Therefore, do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. So what he's saying in verse 2, that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. He repeats in verse 4 when he says, if you are uh, you are severed from grace from Christ because you've fallen away from grace. So it's not to say that you somehow were in Christ and now you're out of Christ. It's right. to say that this, uh, this external, and this is what he's getting at, this external administration that you've participated in, it, it doesn't mean anything. And that's when he goes on down here to say, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. Well, circumcision was the external administration of the covenant of grace under the Mosaic economy. So this external administration doesn't mean anything unless you're joined to Christ by faith. And that's true of baptism as it is of circumcision. So we shouldn't read this as some sort of like union with Christ that is broken. But what he's saying is that when he says you are severed from Christ, he's saying your union with Christ is of no no value to you because it's an external union only. Right. That's well said. I mean, that's also my conviction. I'm waiting though for one of these times when like you and I are going to like uh, disagree. I know. <laughs> and the, like, like These are do. the ones that we would disagree on because you're a Baptist and I'm a Presbyterian. Right. Which is, yeah, strange in some sense, but like reformed or not, it's the teaching of Christ that none of his sheep ever perish. And, right. and I think we have to just accept that on his authority. So John 10, 28 reads, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I am the father of one. So I, I get kind of what's being said here because at the same time, we have to affirm Hebrews 6, 1 through 4 as well, which provides this really kind of terrifying warning, which reads, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up right. to contempt. So the way I understand this passage, again, to your point of, I guess our the theme of this particular episode is just like read all of the Bible. If you can do it at <laughs> one sitting, that would be best. Yeah, that would be good. 
Yeah. So the way I understand this is this is not a warning of losing salvation. It's a warning of being all but saved, of hearing the word of God repeatedly, of giving outward acquiescence to it, basically as unconverted Simon did in Acts 8, maybe even of participating in the life of the church outwardly and giving every indication of spiritual reality to that outward eye, and yet of turning out not to have been truly saved at all, which, which I think what you're driving at as well. Um, because I think the apostle is not speaking of the falling away of these mere professors who were never convinced or influenced by the gospel. Such people would have nothing to fall away from, right? I mean, right. they just have an empty name and just be totally hypocritical. I think the falling away that's mentioned here is this open and avowed renouncing of Christ after they've received the knowledge of the truth, maybe even tasted some of its comfort, maybe even experienced some of the benefits of being part of the people of God. Right. But of these people, Paul says, it's impossible to renew them again unto repentance, not because the blood of Christ is insufficient to obtain pardon for the sin, but this sin in its very nature is opposite to repentance and everything that leads to it. Right. Yeah. And, and those who die in this state of recalcitrant sin and refusal to submit to Christ, those are the people who have committed the sin that leads unto death, right? Those are the people who have fallen away from the grace. And so I think we have to just be aware and careful when we read the scripture because, you know, the scripture is clear. Maybe I'm strange, but I don't really think that this this passage that's being called to mind is all that difficult to understand in relation to what's being said. Um, You know, it it, certainly, it, it can be read to look as though someone is attached to Christ and is in some sort of vital union and then is not in some sort of vital union. But again, this is just why it's important to understand that translations have their limitation. So I don't, mm-hmm. I honestly don't know why the ESV translators chose to use that, um, that word. I don't know why the word severed is there. It doesn't, it doesn't really connect with what the meaning of the word is at all. Um, there's nothing that has to do with like horticulture or surgery or right. any of the kinds of metaphors that would bring the mind, bring to mind the word severed. Um, and I think it, it masks what's actually happening in the text, but it's really important for us to, you know, to read through these things and not everybody's going to know Greek. And, and I understand that. And that's why this is hard is because, the the words that are in English are not necessarily the inspired word of God, right? The 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 scripture is inspired in its original Greek autographs, and if if there exists exact copies of the autographs, we would say inspiration extends to those as well. But these translations that we have are, as far as we know, they're they're faithful translations, so we can treat them as the word of God. But we have to be cautious to recognize that we're not always going to have a translation that faithfully or perfectly represents what was being said in the Greek. What I think would be helpful to our conversation is to play another voicemail that we received kind of in this same subject matter. So let's listen to this one. Hi, um, I just, uh, my name is Jonathan Allen. I just listened to you guys' podcast on, uh, on Derek Webb going over the popcorn theology one. Um, I, I don't know, I guess I don't really don't know why I'm calling. I guess it's just to say thank you for doing that and I think it was uh it was heavy. I've um just kinda it's been a history. My my ex wife uh became an apostate and committed adultery. My current wife, her ex husband, committed committed adultery, um, was apostate and uh, you know, both of us were abandoned and, and you know, it's actually kind of through healing, that healing process that we actually found each other. Um I recently had a friend, like 
in the last week just called me up and say that he no longer believes and he's in the process of leaving the faith. And it's heavy. It's heavy. It's heavy. And um, I think I, I, I just thank you guys for, for tackling it. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a topic where um, it's frightening because, like you said, if, any, if it can happen to anybody, it, it, could, it could happen to us. If it can happen to that person, it can happen to us. And so that growing in holiness piece. So I really appreciate Jonathan leaving us a voicemail and just being really candid about how he's really experienced the reality and tragedy and fear of apostasy, because it does move us, I think, in the direction of what we were talking about. And it also reminds us that this isn't just like an armchair theological conversation, yeah. but this is, is a reality. And yeah. that I think people not only wrestle with this, but they wrestle with loved ones whom they believe that have fallen into kind of this, this pattern. And I think one thing that's been helpful for me is to look at Hebrews 3.14. I was thinking about this in light of what Jonathan said. And I think that the indication of past salvation is the present reality. So here's what Hebrews 3.14 says. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So what's important to me is like, note the tense of that. We have come, that is like abidingly and at some point in the past, it's the perfect tense, to share in Christ if we hold our original confidence firm, that is, at the present moment, it's a subjective noun, to the end. So the indication of past salvation is a present reality, because the converse would be clearly, for we have not come to share in Christ if we fail to hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Does that make sense? It does. And that's, you know, that's exactly it, is Sometimes, you know, this is one of the major distinctions between the Lutheran and the Reformed tradition in terms of the doctrine of assurance, is a Lutheran is going to say, point to your baptism. Remember your baptism, and that's where you have assurance. And the Reformed would say your baptism can serve as a sort of, um, as a source of comfort and as something that helps you obtain assurance. But ultimately, the assurance that we have as Christians is that we currently trust in Christ. So we, it's true that we can't know um, in a future state whether we will apostatize. But the Bible never calls us to look forward in time and try to determine whether or not we will apostatize. And it never exactly. really calls us to look backwards in time to see where we've come from. But like in verses like this, it lo- tells us to look at our current state now. Examine yourself and see if you are current tense, present tense in the faith. Right. It, yes. it make your calling and election sure. Well, how do you do that? By persisting in the good work that God has prepared for you in this moment. So I think that that's really important to to land on, is that we can't necessarily look at um, our baptism or our um, you know our our altar call confession of faith or even the years and years that we faithfully served Christ because there are lots of people who faithfully serve Christ for years and years and then they fall away from the faith. But what those people can't say, what, you know, what Derek Webb can't say and never, never can say again, unless he comes to faith is I trust in Christ now. So he can say as much as he wants. I trusted in Christ then, but trusting in Christ is a lifelong thing. If you trust in Christ, you will trust in Christ until the end. So that means necessarily that if you do not trust in Christ now, it means you never did trust in Christ. Exactly. I mean, one of the verses that I think is sometimes levied against that argument that I'm not sure that uh, was quoted here, but I hear a lot is this uh, is Revelation 3, 5, um, which you know states, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. So the assumption often 
is that when Revelation 3.5 says God will not erase a person's name from the book of life, it's implying that he does erase some from the book of life and that right. those and that there are those people who are once justified and then later be, who became, became condemned. But I think the promise, I will never blot his name out from the book of life, does not necessarily imply that some do have their names erased. It, it's just saying that the one who is in the book and who conquers in faith, God's saying, I will never wipe out your name. In other words, being erased is a fearful prospect, which I will not allow to happen. I will keep right. you safe in the book. So that is one of the promises made to those who persevere and conquer. It does not say that those who fail to conquer and fall away from Christ are written in the book and got erased. So to your point, this is going back. There's so many wonderful scriptures that I think God has given to us because he understood that we would struggle with this. So when you know one, when 1 John 2.19, I think really describes, for instance, how we should understand like these apparent dropouts, so to speak which says, you know, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. Yeah. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they were not of us. I mean, that's that almost seems like a throwaway sentence, but it's, it's beautiful in the context of the discussion that you and I are having in light of this particular voicemail. Yeah. And, you know, I want to look at the Greek of, of Revelation real quick here. Because of course of the, you do. Of course I do. And, and this, is, <laughs> this is why I'm saying, like, it's so important. And even if you can't if you can't learn greek which there are tons of free resources out there to learn at least a cursory understanding of biblical greek so so if you're interested and you don't know where to look to find that please email the info at reformbrotherhood.com and i'll be happy to connect you with some resources there's tons of free resources out there but even in this verse here we have um basically the conquering one this one will be clothed in white garments and um and will not, sorry, let me, yeah, and I will not, or I will never blot his name out of the book of life. So it's not saying that, uh, it's not saying that God blots some people's names out of out of the book of life. He's not talking right. about people whose names are not in the book of life. He's not exactly. talking about the people who fail to conquer and who fail to be clothed in white garments. He's. This is a promise that those who do conquer that they will in fact be clothed in white garments and they will in fact persist in the name of life because God promises he will never blot their name out and Jesus will confess his name before the father and the angels. So this people who take this and turn this into some sort of idea that like it, it does exactly what it, what it's not intended to do is it, it undercuts assurance when you read this the wrong way. And that's why it's important again, you know, pick up a good commentary. Um, ESV just put out a commentary set. I got, um, I got one of them for Christmas and then I bought the other two that are out, but it's the ESV expository commentary. Uh, the, the, um, the volume on revelation is out and that has Hebrews in it. It has a bunch of different books. Um, it's very basic, but it'd be really good to sort of get at some of these things because I didn't, I haven't read this passage yet, but I guarantee you that they point out the fact that the one who conquers that that's a present participle, meaning all of those who are currently conquering those who, right on. those who are the conquering ones will be clothed in white garments. Um, meaning those who never stop conquering those who continue to conquer, will be clothed in white garments. So it's it really is a promise for those who persist in the faith, not some sort of threat against those who might fail to persist in the faith. Well said. By the way, I should have said this earlier, but maybe it was like five minutes ago now, you said the word recalcitrant, and I wanted to like stand up and chest bump you. <laughs> I love that, that word. That was just a beautiful use of that word. I don't even remember what it was about, but I love that word. 
Yeah, it was a it was about apostasy. It was fantastic. It, if we were in the same place, I would have just like I don't know if there's an equivalent emoji for like chest bumping, but I would have dropped that right on you. That'd be pretty sweet. We should we should find the people who make emojis, <laughs> and we should get them to make a chest bump emoji. <laughs> the professional emoji creators. Um, there's a dictionary out there that has emojis in it, like an emoji really? dictionary. I'll have to try to find it sometime. That is incredible. Where else can you get this stuff? What other podcast has somebody translating Greek in real time and then also talking about emoji dictionaries? I don't know. None. Yeah, that's the answer. None. How about we do one more voicemail? Let's do it. You got one more in you? I do. All right, here we go. Hey, guys. My name is Scott Martin. I'm a student at Denver Seminary and a longtime listener to your podcast. I'm excited about the uh, book club. I'm calling to comment on the first chapter of Beaky's book. Uh, I noticed even just halfway through reading it, that um, the first chapter, that I think the doctrines of grace are really foundational to the entire concept of Reformed experiential preaching for two reasons. One, because we know that um, God's elect will respond in faith to the preaching of the word. Um, the Holy Spirit will quicken men's hearts. But second, Beaky goes on to point out that it's the preacher's job to preach um, particularly to the affections of the the audience, both sinner and saint. And so I think <clears throat> having uh, our preaching founded in God's grace as the sole and sovereign determination of, of man's eternal destiny is important because I feel like um, someone with more of an Arminian leaning would have to cater to um, the ears of his hearers and try not to offend someone, whereas those of us who believe in God's uh, sovereign power over man's uh, election can preach confidently to the affections, um, including condemning that which is truly deplorable. He quotes Brainerd, um, uh, quote, labor to distinguish clearly upon experiences and affections in religion, that you may make a difference between the gold and the shining dross. I say labor you as every and useful minister of Christ. And I think that's important. Like, we have to labor over the fact that stuff is gross and wicked and deplorable and sinful before God. And that's going to offend a lot of people who are caught up in that bondage to whatever sin that might be. And if we believe the Holy Spirit is at work to bring them to life, then we can confidently claim that rather than risk it. So I want to just throw that in the ring for discussion. I don't know if you guys have recorded or not, but uh, looking forward to the rest of the year and going through this book together. Thanks, Jeff. So I love this question from Scott because it's right on the heels of we just started the book cast, which gives us another excuse just to plug that we're reading Reformed Preaching by Dr. Joel Beakey. We hope you'll pick up a copy of that yeah. and read along with us. We, we just did the first chapter. And whether or not you're reading the book, I think hopefully it's going to be profitable and encouraging, challenging conversation. But I like what he gets at here. And I think if I kind of just distill it down, I think what he's really asking is, does reform preaching uniquely preach to the affections of saints and sinners as opposed to, let's say, like another style or another form of preaching from a different theological perspective, like the Arminian yeah. perspective? What do you think? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say that reform preaching is unique in that it preaches to the affections. Um, I might say that it's unique in that it rightly preaches to the affections. So yeah, yeah, you have all you. sorts of Arminian theology, like one of... Um, you know, Charles Finney's major things was to preach to the affections of the person that they were talking to, but he preached to them in a way that sort of takes advantage of um, emotional weakness rather than actually 
preaching to the affections of the saints. Um, but what I would say is that um, I think that the Reformed, let me put it this way, Reformed preaching may not be unique in this, but preaching that does not do this cannot properly be said to be Reformed preaching. Exactly. And that's one of the things that I'm learning out of this book with um, Joel Beakey is that the Reformed tradition particularly um, is preaching, you know, I'm looking, I have the book sitting on my desk and the sub, the subtitle is proclaiming God's words from the heart of the preacher to the heart of his people. So it's not just a matter of academic discourse. It's about communicating what, um, what God is burdening the pastor with for his congregation. Um, I don't know other traditions that really have a focus on that the same way. And one of the things in Arminian preaching particular is because Arminianism has as a component of salvation, something that you must do that God does not accomplish for you. He might make it possible for you to do, but he doesn't do it for you. Um, there's a certain string of, or a certain thread of legalistic preaching or works driven preaching. That's really prominent in Arminian circles. And so it's almost like they preach to um, the sinner or the saints, um, their work ethic more than they do to the, the, you know, the hearts of the saints. Right. Yeah. There's a huge difference here. And I think this is what kind of Scott is driving at between preaching to the affections of men and preaching that appeals to the affections of men. Because right. the first is like a weighing machine and the second is like a vending machine. Right. So like to rightly handle God's truth, I think is to preach to the effectual blessing of God's people. And at the same time to the effectual awakening of lost sinners, because we often think of affections as only those positive things. Like I want to awake in the congregation, those godly passions and desires, which by the Holy Spirit and through the death of Christ have been placed into the life of the one whom God has elected. But I think what's unique about the Reformed preaching, as kind of you were saying, is that it hits both by saying some of the affections that you have are just downright nasty. They they do not belong to the godly man and they need to be confronted. And this goes all the way back to the first question about trends in kind of like general Christianity. But again, in evangelicalism, this sense of, well, we don't really want to preach that way. You know, I think we've all heard sermons where as like the preacher came to a close he encouraged us to praise and thank the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we've all also heard sermons that when the preacher finished, our hearts were full of praise right. and thanks to the Lord yeah. Jesus Christ. And, and there's a difference between the two. And I think there is something that the, the Reformed tradition kind of biases toward the, the latter of those. I mean, Reformed preaching, as Dr. Beeky is describing it, should be this great force of transformation. The hearers feel the reality of the presence of the Holy Spirit within. Yeah. But I think like the love for the world cannot be destroyed merely by showing its emptiness because that would just leave us to despair. I think what has to happen is we have to receive the fullness of God by the preaching of his words. So it drives out all these former affections that are of an inferior nature. And the problem I have where I think kind of, I think what Scott's saying, what you're saying is that what's unique about the Reformed tradition is it just tells us the truth about reality as the scripture describes it. And so what that means is, we shouldn't place at parity God and our ability to adjudicate by way of our affections because we know that they're corrupted. So I cannot trust them to make a good judgment. I certainly cannot trust them to make a good judgment when it comes to spiritual matters. So I think even I would say uh, like a well-balanced or a well-informed, maybe theologically based Arminian would say, well, the sermon that I would like to deliver, I don't want to play in affections but I do want to give an offer to come and receive or to make a decision. And still that is problematic for me 
Because what it's basically saying is that it is possible to make a good decision. And reform preaching is unashamedly saying all of your affections are totally jacked up. And we must confront that first before we can go any further. And so I, I think there is like some uniqueness there, at least in that respect. Yeah. And one of the things I think is, um, I don't want this to sound too much like I'm slapping our Lutheran and Armenian brothers around, but I'm kind of slapping our Lutheran and Armenian brothers around is, um, in my experience, the, the reformed preacher is more concerned with proclaiming the words of God and what they mean than um, my experience with other traditions. And what I right. mean by that is that you're going to spend a lot more time actually hearing the scripture read and summarized and stated um, and and explained in a Reformed sermon than you might in um, another sermon from another tradition that has the same length. And for me, you know, that, that phrase you said where like we can go away from the sermon and our hearts are filled with praise, or we can go away from the sermon having been encouraged to praise God from our hearts. Um, the difference that I see is that in reformed preaching, our hearts are being filled with praise because the word of God is being preached to us. Right and so it's, it's a matter that the word rightly preached is the word of God. And so when the word of God confronts us, if we're faithful covenant servants, then our response is, Lord, I love you so much. Send me. Let, let me do your will. Please let me do your will. Let me be right. the one that goes. Let me be the one that glorifies you. Like we beg God to let us be the one that he uses. In other um, traditions, particularly Arminianism, since that's kind of what we're contrasting against here, the the sense is more along the lines of like, well, I can make a decision to go. Like, I'll go. Why don't I go? I think I'll go. Right. It's not it's not this sovereign lord of the universe. Please see fit to include me in your plan. It's like, well, I could go. Like I I could go and I think I will. I'm going to go. It's much more like centered around the choice and the volition of the person than it is around the servanthood or the servantness of um the person receiving the sermon. Yeah, and I think that's the difference between like preaching as kind of as Scott was drawing out here, preaching to the affections versus appealing to the affections exactly. of men. Exactly. And that, that's a huge difference. And I think a lot of preaching these days is in some sense because who does not want to fill the pews or the chairs or wherever you meet with people that are seeking and searching for God if such a person actually exists, which the scriptures tell us really they don't. So they I'm don't. not sure why I got into that. Yeah. Um but but that all that to say, like express, like that's the mindset, and there is a big difference here. And, I, and what I like, and I'm encouraged about as we go through this book, is I think Doctor Beaky is really laying down the gauntlet of like, here's what preaching is, here's what right preaching is, here's what it means to rightly handle God's truth. And I totally agree with you. It, the wonderful thing I think about those who would who would self-identify as reformed in their preaching are super concerned. And at least I think acknowledge that the best part of the sermon is the is the part that comes right from the scripture, yeah. And that that is what allows us to to pierce and divide you know soul and spirit. And it's that very thing that when we start to remove it and come up with a kind of like clever clever metaphors or comparisons, that sometimes those actually work against us. And I think that that can be taken to an extreme, but I think that there's something in that that really kind of comes and wins my heart because. We're talking about preaching from the heart to the heart. And I think of somebody like Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who like 
he he was like so concerned with preaching, like you said, that was rightly handling the word of God, that was bringing that in all of its fullness, that like he didn't suffer like any kind of like humorous introductions yeah. or strange metaphors. And I get that to a sense, but I, I think that some people would say, well, you know, it's important to identify with your audience. And I totally agree with that. At the same time, I just appreciate that his heart was the word of God needs to be exposited this morning and proclaimed. And the word of God never, ever returns void. So my responsibility is to present it to the people in front of me because they've been vouchsafed to my care. And the best way I can care for them is to deliver the word of God. Yeah. Yeah. And this is not in any sense to disagree with or criticize those who do have sort of like a culturally relevant introduction. Like um, our pastor has, has usually has some sort of like transitional cultural introduction to the sermon, but I don't, I don't address the congregation from the pulpit very often, but when I do, I don't have any sort of lead up at all. I, I don't do any introduction at all. And I've never once had someone go, you know, that sermon really failed because you didn't, you didn't talk about the latest football game that happened or the, you know, a Marvel comic movie or something like that. And the times that I have tried to have some sort of slick, you know, like introduction from pop culture or an interesting fact from the news or something like that, it's just fallen on its face. So for me, the word of God is the central feature of the sermon. And so if, if anything that I'm doing during the course of the sermon is drawing, it's drawing attention away from the word of God and either onto myself or onto something else, onto another thought process or a different thing going on, then that's the wrong decision to make. So I just think the reform tradition, maybe not uniquely, but distinctively and especially is focused on preaching the word of God to God's people in a, in a way that is, um, distinctively reformed, I think. And there are many in the reform tradition against self-identifying who do use, I think the appropriate introductions or cultural right. references, but I would say that's more the exception in those men who I've heard who do that exceptionally well. And there are many of them are almost surgical in their precision with how they right. use it. Yeah, exactly. They don't use it liberally. They understand how to make sure that even that points back and leads us back to the scriptures. Exactly. So it's just, I think it can be problematic. I think what happens maybe sometimes is that pastors feel like they need the mental hook first and right. they start there as opposed to going the other way around. And that could be a little bit kind of maybe what Scott is driving at here when he talks about the, the doctrines of grace. But yeah, yeah I agree. There, there's something really, I think, special. And of course, we're going to be biased in this sense, but I believe that reform preaching is really the best rubric in which to present the scriptures because it's it's the most accurate to the full counsel of God. And of course, that's yep. what we want to hear every Lord's Day. Yep, absolutely. Well, Jesse, this has been another successful question cast. And as we mentioned, I, mean, I hope so. I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, we'll find out. Um, we're just going to name it and claim it that it is going to be a successful question cast. Speaking so, of trends, the best part is that anybody who might not listen to this to try to disprove us wrong or to try to disprove us would have to have already listened to it in order for them to know they need to do that. So, jokes on That's you. That's fair enough. Um, but Boom. we are out of questions in our backlog. So we love doing question cast. Uh, we hope that our listeners love listening to question cast, but if you want to continue to have question cast, you got to call us and leave voicemail. So Jesse, why don't, before we close, why don't you hit us with that phone number one more time? 607-444-2767. And that spells bros. 
Yeah, if you're more inclined, and maybe some people are too. And that was this was really I should give credit to you, Tony. You're the one that got this number. <laughs> and it's outstanding. So if you're just like, please, what I need is six numbers and some kind of alpha characters. Well then it's 607 444 B R O S. Yes. So give and us a do, call, leave us a voicemail. We would love to hear from you. And we do read everything that people write, of course. People often will write a question via email. However, I must say, right or wrong, we're kind of biased toward the voicemail questions because we love to hear other people's voices Mm -hmm. as part of the conversation. So if you are thinking about writing an email, you could just pick up your cell phone and maybe distill that question down and leave a little voicemail. That'd be great. Well, Jesse, I think that just about does it for today. I think so, Tony. So until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Uh...